So I'm very pleased to uh, introduce today's speaker, coming to us all the way from St. Cross College, Oxford, <laughs> um, but has actually wandered uh, a lot further than uh, from one set from one part of Oxford to another. He's extremely well travelled um, in the, the Balkan region and has written not only academic articles and books but also travel guides for uh, most countries of the region. Um, but his last book is on um, the Kosovo Liberation Army, um, looking at his title, Underground War to Balkan Insurgency, 1948-2001, to looking at the prehistory of the organization that some of the people in this room uh, only learned about when they were asked to take, uh, take uh, to use armed force on their behalf uh, back in 1999. So this should be a really interesting introduction to who these people really were, what their goals are, and... Um, yeah, what effect the 1999 intervention actually had. So, thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, and thank you very much for the programme also, to giving me the opportunity to talk about some aspects uh, of this. Um, what I plan to do is, uh, in the time-honoured phrase, uh, divide everything into three parts, um, like Caesar's Gaul. The first part, I'd like to summarise what I see as of value in trying to understand the immediate past history of this organization and what the history means in terms of wider um, Balkan modern history. Then secondly, um, as we are also here in this uh, building, um, I was going to say something briefly about what seems to me to be the inheritance of the organization in terms of current uh, Kosovo security concerns and thirdly, to indicate one or two um, points which I think will lead um, to future avenues for academic research. <coughs> um, the question, of course, is, in a way, with all these movements, um, as Patrick Lee Fermor, the Hellenist, put it in something he wrote many years ago, of what happens when you turn warriors into waiters. He was thinking of the people he'd known who'd fought against the Italian invasion of Greece and then also many of them fought subsequently in the civil war in Greece afterwards. Uh, let us look, therefore, focus our minds perhaps at this picture because on the one hand this is a genuine authentic photograph that was taken by, by somebody in Pristina in the war in um, May 1999. And you have this sort of Casper David Friedrich type immense uh, landscape, and you have these little resistance with their guns against the great landscape. In that way, it could be a picture taken anywhere in the French Resistance or in the Italian mountains, fighting partisan warfare against Mussolini or many other recent modern history contexts. Well, these people, in fact, are nearly all doctors, and they're today doctors in Pristina. And this lady here is one of the chief gynaecologists in Pristina. And what we're actually looking at was a KLA medical unit. So these people, in a way, you could say, uh, offer an exemplary justification for international intervention because they've taken up arms, 
as we can see some of them are armed even though they're doctors in what uh, was seen as a good cause and they've now returned to civilian life in an important profession uh, and are rebuilding a new Kosovo so this is Paradigm 1 now um, let's look at my second illustration which again as I say is very much to focus our thoughts on the issues um, this is a picture of a KLA unit in action at almost exactly the same time as the other photograph was taken uh, this unit was in the Koshari Valley on the borders of Kosovo and Albania and it was being formed uh, and looks in like a fairly reasonable little infantry unit um, largely thanks to British help because the people who trained this unit were British Special Forces soldiers who were posted undercover to Krumah in Albania to help improve the military efficiency of the KLA. So I show this picture for two reasons, because this uh, conveys to us the image of, of a, a proper army in a sense, rather than a rural improvised defence force, but it also conveys <coughs> I think the sense that um, a certain sense of fabrication I think in the previous image there's nothing fabricated this is an image they march towards the photographer to look good um, and for all we know they may have performed well in Koshari Koshari was one of the better aspects of the KLA's history in uh, the NATO bombing period Now the third picture here is of a very different group of people. This is taken in Macedonia, in near Tetovo, a village called Shipkovitsa, in um, 2001. Uh, and <coughs> the, the main figure to focus on is this man here in uniform, um, Ali Ahmeti, <laughs> who was in the war head of the KLA's munitions and logistics uh, procurement unit in Albania but of course now is Deputy Prime Minister of Macedonia and has been regularly in power ever since and he is the paradigm if you wish of the KLA or NLA leader who's turned themselves successfully into a respectable politician who travels where he wishes and um, is involved in all sorts of conventional political practice. <coughs> so, if we're trying to answer the question, what is the inheritance of the Kosovo Liberation Army? We have two out of these three, our preferred images, if you wish. The doctors in uniform who became doctors and nurses, and now these men uh, one of whom is actually dead, was killed later in the war, bearded man on the right, but um, where, where the, po the political leadership has evolved. And of course the most prominent <coughs> of these people is Hashim Thaci, who is currently Prime Minister of Kosovo and um, also takes part in normal p political practice uh, in the leadership of his country. Uh, the origin of my book lay really in a conversation with Mr. Thaci um, at a period when Kosovo was still under UN administration 
about 2001, 2002, um, and we had become quite close friends and we were involved in all sorts of political dialogue about the future of Kosovo and he wanted me to write a history of the war um, which was basically a, a biography of Adam Jashari, the founding father of the KLA who was killed at his, with most of his family in Prakash in March 1998. I thought about this a lot. Um, Mr. Tarchi is a, 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 an educated and intelligent man and also a history graduate and pupil of my friend, ex-pupil I should say, of my friend Nada Boskovska who runs the East European History Seminar in Zurich. And I did do some work on the subject and it didn't come to fruition for various reasons. I think mainly because I felt uh, a biographical study of a leader of this kind wasn't the right way to try to write the history of the war and uh, I think that was a correct decision in retrospect <coughs> when I started to undertake the book like many other uh, uh, books I think that you, you, you this, this comes up if you are writing contemporary history you find that the sources of events go back much further than you originally thought uh, again, I think this is why it would have been a mistake to, to base the book around Yashari because um, the causes of the KLA's growth and ultimately a relative success lie much further back in history. And uh, my book traces um, what happened from the break between Tito and Stalin in 1948 where with new documents that have emerged um, I was able to get hold of in Moscow uh, it was clear that um, there had been Russian interest in creating an insurgency against Tito um, based primarily on the Albanian minority in the south as early as 1950 um, and there was this genesis of a possible insurgency force uh, along the lines of what would eventually become the KLA as early as the autumn of 1951. Mehmet Shehu, Enver Hoxha's number two, uh, was very closely involved in a lot of these discussions. Uh, Shehu was um, in some ways Hoxha's alter ego who'd been a senior partisan commander in the Spanish Civil War and then he became head of the Albanian Armed Forces um, after the establishment of communism in Albania in 1945. Stalin's ambassador in Albania, Chuvalkin, was also very interested in this possibility and some of the dialogues which I, I've used are based on documents um, and discussions he had with Shehu in Moscow in that period. But of course the Russians had many different fish to fry and they wanted a good relationship after a while with Tito. They felt Russian influence could be maintained at least to a degree in Belgrade and they didn't want to put all their eggs in the Albanian basket. And like many other people in from very, very different political traditions, they found Enver Hoxha a very difficult and tricky person to deal with and a very unsatisfactory ally. Nevertheless, some underground work started 
uh, I was able to conduct oral interviews with survivors from this period who were living in exile in the United States, uh, one of whom in particular became a key figure in the genesis of the KLA's support mechanisms in the Albanian-American diaspora. And these people were veterans of long periods of incarceration in Tito's jails, and they were uh, a wonderful guide uh, to the world of the political underground, which uh, was essentially in that period a prison-based world. <coughs> I won't trouble you with recapitulation of recent Kosovo history, but I, I would just mention that um, during the Cold War, of course, Kosovo was uh, forgotten and neglected by the international community. The United States, as the only potential serious new friend of, and protector of Albania, as it ever had always been since Woodrow Wilson's time, was preoccupied with relations with Tito and Belgrade, and also with the Adriatic coast as a focus for sea power. Um, but this began to change a little as um, time went on, and in particular after the violent demonstrations in 1968 and 1981 in Kosovo against uh, Belgrade rule. After 1981, about 1,500 people were imprisoned, in some cases for long periods, as a result of taking part in the demonstrations. And in 1982, partly in prison and partly outside it, uh, Levizia Populare Kosovo was formed, Lipica, the Kosovo People's Movement, which was a Marxist-Leninist underground organization which sought to open up the issue of armed resistance again against Belgrade rule. <coughs> the heart of my book is really tracing Lipica and its influence over subsequent events. Um, as early as 19... 80, November 1980, other groups of people were beginning to f form armed uh, underground cells in, in Western Europe, principally in Brussels and in Stuttgart. The Gavala brothers uh, were assassinated in Stuttgart in 1982, who were the most coherent possible future leaders of an insurgency. And the decision was taken by Lepica Exterior um, to establish a new centre of organisation, uh, but not in Germany because of the security problems, but in Switzerland, in Zurich. And um, in my view, Lepica Exterior in Zurich was the midwife for the KLA. Um, there will be very much more research to be done on this and we know that some leading participants have written memoirs which at the moment they're not willing to publish but this was where um, things, things happened they were also able in Zurich to get some assistance from Albanian uh, sources because Albania's foreign trade even in the period of most autarkic isolation was conducted and financed, was done through Switzerland <coughs> as a neutral country. And so the Marxist-Leninists in Lipica were able to open dialogue with um, the Hojurists in Tirana about the nature of what an insurgency might involve. 
We don't know a great deal about Hoja's reactions to these things. The reason for this is, I hope people will not think my fault of indolence as a, a, a researcher and historian, but simply because in Tirana most of the relevant archives are still shut. And there may be archives elsewhere that would cast light on things, but we don't have access to them at the moment. <coughs> but um, by the end of the 1980s, there was already a build-up of small arms and um, other munitions developing in some places in Kosovo. And um, this is what the core of my story is, be, is about, really. Um, how this was done, uh, how certain things were successful, how other things were failures, and um, how what became was a tiny group of people I mean, the core group of people in Zurich in 1987-88 was a maximum of 25 people, and some people would argue not as many as that. How it grew um, to be able to put a military force in the field ten years later, um, and ultimately a force of 18,000 strong that was involved as an ally uh, of NATO in NATO's um, air campaign. Um, the ramifications of many of these things are very complex and I haven't got time to go into them now but um, what I think I would argue is that much of the work that built the KLA was done independently of the political leadership people realised in Kosovo the political leadership in, in Switzerland was necessary but it, it wasn't something which operated in a, 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 a very coherently authoritarian way. Uh, to take one example, in most of the armies in the Balkans which depend on the partisan warfare tradition, you had political commissars who were, certainly in the Second World War period, communists who were primarily political functionaries rather than mili military and whose duty was to see nobody stepped out of line. The value of these people was not doubted by people of Mehmet Shehu's generation. Shehu, uh, in some of his surviving writings, has written about the political chaos as he saw it in the Spanish Civil War and the splits on the Republican side that affected military operations. And he, he and others like him, or for that matter Tito, had had, had the same experience in Spain. Uh, they, they didn't want the same things repeated in their own insurgency anti-Axis movements in, in the Second World War. The KLA, I think, was more intelligent. There were certainly Marxist-Leninists in the leadership, but there were also many people who were not, and who were independent nationalists. And they were able to work together in a way which um, I think surprised a lot of us who were studying the movement uh, at the time. I first, uh, just as an anecdote, I first came into contact with armed people in Kosovo in 1992, who I was astonished to meet, uh, as one often does with these things, met by accident. Um, I was immediately struck by the very low level of their munitions, and particularly the fact they had weapons but virtually no ammunition. And this was going to be the story of the KLA for many years afterwards. <coughs> now this inheritance, of course, grew, and um, 
as I've indicated in the middle of my book, the KLA ended up fighting side by side with the British Special Forces in Koshari in um, May and June um, 1999. And at one level, this could be seen as the fulfillment of a dream, really, that this extraordinary, uh, some people would say backward, rural defence force was fighting side by side with the finest infantry soldiers in the world, arguably. Yet within six months, the KLA didn't exist. It was demobilised under the military technical agreements that General Jackson and others signed with the Serbs. And Kosovo to this day, even though formally independent, still doesn't have an army. Now, I won't uh, and haven't got time to dwell too much on the intricacies of what's been going on in Kosovo in the last few years, but I think all of you should be aware of the many difficulties in northern Kosovo that still exist with its Serbian majority areas north of the Ibar River, the very high levels of personal arms possession in both communities, and the re recreation of what traditionally has been known by, was always called by Tito, uh, the Albanian arsenal, in other words, heavy personal arms possession and munitions possession in the house and in the farm. Security in Kosovo is provided now by NATO, as it has been since July 1999, but with a, a quite dramatically diminished number of soldiers and, and special police. Uh, I think I'm right in saying that in about August-September 1999, there was about 33,000, 35,000 NATO soldiers you know, with boots on the ground in Kosovo. That has now shrunk to much less than 10. And if you subtract the people whose essential duties are in keeping bases open, um, technical work, logistics, the number of people who could be mobilised in the event of difficulties in Kosovo is, is quite limited. <coughs> Since independence, it's been argued that Kosovo will, at some point, have an army and this would inherit the KLA's tradition. So one way of interpreting the title of what I had to say this morning is, is, is it, it, you could say there could be a subtitle, Will There Be a Kosovo Army? Well, the answer to that, I think, is very complex. Uh, it's an open secret that the United States and the UK wanted there to be a Kosovo Army as part of the Atasari Agreement on Independence. But it's uh, also, I think, an open secret and established that the Europeans involved in that process vetoed this because they felt the Serbs shouldn't have to accept this and also that it would mean that the Serbs wouldn't sign the Atasari deal. <coughs> well, whatever the rights and wrongs with that, the question has not gone away. Pessimists would say that the paramilitary tradition in Kosovo is still alive. This is exemplified by the very high level of weapons possession in, in families and so on, which I've mentioned, uh, and that the grounds for conflict are still there. If you have, as often happens in Balkan conflicts, 
some random incident that's nothing to do with politics at one level suddenly starts something and then you have rioting and the rioting can't be controlled. Well, all of that agenda is certainly still present. We saw serious rioting in Kosovo in spring 2003 and also in less so in 2005. <coughs> the Ibar River and Mitrovica <coughs> in the north is still a flashpoint for, for tensions. Would there be, if there was intercommunal trouble again, or pessimists might say, now we have intercommunal trouble again, or could be on the brink of it, um, what role would paramilitarism play? Uh, I think that's very hard to judge. Um, the old Lipica doesn't exist anymore. After 1999, it became an open political party for a short time, and doesn't have any, uh, didn't have any future. And many members of Lipica eventually joined uh, Mr. Ramos Haradinaj's party, the majority, I think, who were resident in Kosovo. You, you have a very different Kosovo diaspora now, because most people have gone back home who were in political exile. Uh, you no longer have what I think was the key catalyst for the insurgency, the imprisonment of so many militants in the 1980s, um, where prison formed, as it often does, a, a good university for, for revolutionaries. So the old KLA is undoubtedly finished. But I think there are people who are now looking to the future they're looking to the unsatisfactory status, as they see it, of Kosovo under the Atasari deal. They're looking at the security vacuum, which I think many people agree exists, with NATO's drawing down and the absence of anything to replace NATO, <coughs> and also growing regional tensions. Um, in the last few years, membership of the European Union has been held up as the answer to many of the problems of the Balkans. Some new countries uh, have joined, like Croatia recently, or is in the process of joining. But what difference this is going to make to underlying ethnic issues is far from clear. It's also far from clear what the real purchase of the European Union will be. Um, particularly, I think, in Washington, in the Obama administration's orbit, the European Union is seen virtually as a panacea to all problems of Eastern Europe. Well, I think we only have to open the newspapers, certainly this morning, to see that is perhaps not a, a very responsible viewpoint. Um, the Bush administration was highly activist in the Balkans, uh, obviously particularly on the Albanian side, and in the manner of a lot of US administrations, the incoming administration wants to do the diametric opposite of what the previous one did. And uh, we saw this when, when Bush people arrived, and I think you're seeing some of that now in, in Kosovo. Uh, my own view is that the Kosovo Protection Corps, which is made up of certainly many ex-KLA people, needs further development. General Cechu uh, came to this country and made a speech a little in the last autumn, and he said this, but I don't know how much support he got. Um, 
I'm very interested to see we have one member of the audience who I think has much to say on this if she has the opportunity to hear in the discussion. Um, the fact remains Kosovo is not yet a normal functioning state. It has many of the appendages of statehood. It has grown quite successfully some of the state uh, functions from 1999 in quite a short period. For instance, it has quite a coherent and well-trained young diplomatic service, but it doesn't have an army. And the question of an army is central, really, to discussing um, the inheritance uh, of the KLA. Mm -hmm. If we try and see what the options are for this inheritance, there are really only two. One is, I think, to go back to this, really, um, I mean, that is what many NATO nations would like an orderly infantry force trained uh, according to NATO standards and which uh, particularly in US eyes could provide badly needed manpower for US led international coalitions <coughs> That's also, I think, what many Kosovar Albanians would like, because um, they feel then the army, when it comes, would be funded largely by NATO and by the US, and we would have all good jobs and foreign travel, and it would be very nice. But that tradition, uh, that image of an army, has not much to do with the KLA's inheritance. The KLA's inheritance is primarily based on defence of, of territory, property, family, and so on. And it's informal, it's paramilitary, uh, and so on. And reconciling the two is going to be difficult. Uh, I found in one of my notebooks recently a discussion I had with Hashim Tharchi back in October 2001, when we were talking, as we often did, about what should or shouldn't happen to the ex-soldiers of the KLA uh, because this was becoming quite a live issue by then in the international community and there were widespread allegations of organised crime involvement and so on, racketeering ex-soldiers and all the, the usual problems that partially demobilised armies often have um, and Sarchi said to me, well of course you've got to understand James, and I'm quoting verbatim here from the conversation. He said, we were always really two armies, and at the time I think we never understood that well enough. Uh, there was the local, rural, informal tradition of the Cheta in Balkan terms, in other words the uh, unit led by a prominent local individual based on purely, usually personal charisma, not military rank. And there was the formal tradition, which was in any ways inherited from those in the KLA who'd served in Tito's um, JNA and then VJ successors. And General Cheku, of course, is very much from the second tradition. And I think that accounts, um, and I think this is not just my opinion, but many observers feel this is accounts for his lack of political success in post-war Kosovo whereas Hashim Tharchi and Haradinai and so on belonged to the other tradition in the KLA and they, they were rapidly able to 
form and lead political parties which, whatever the ups and downs of things, particularly in Haradinaj's case, still really dominate the political landscape in Kosovo today. <coughs> there is also another ingredient to consider of what the attitude towards security and the military and the KLA inheritance would be of Alban Kurti's Vetan Vandyosha movement. This is the what originally a student movement, which became now is quite a, a serious political player and has members in the Kosovo Parliament, and it is completely rejectionist of the Atasari plan, and would mean if they came to power, I think, the departure of most of the remaining Serbs from Kosovo, and also the opening of, um, in some dimensions, the opening of the border with Albania and the movement towards a more united state. Now, um, Kurti's own background is distinctly non-military. He was a prominent student leader in the war. He didn't join the KLA, unlike virtually everyone in the leadership of Haradina and Thatcher's parties. And he um, was then imprisoned in Serbia for a long time. And I've said in my book that I think that while his uh, nationalistic credentials are impeccable, there will always be a question mark about his credibility in many popular eyes on the Kosovo-Albanian side because of his lack of involvement in the war. Although, of course, uh, he would be the first to say, well, that wasn't my fault if I was locked up. Um, so their, issue, their, point, I think, their point of view is, I think, ambiguous. It's not clear what stance they would take. Um, I think in their hearts, like probably the majority of Kosovo-Albanians, they would like a KLA back. There's an enormous inherited consciousness in all modern Balkan societies of the informal tradition in warfare. Grandpa who heroically killed a German in our village, great-grandpa who heroically killed an Italian in his or something, going back years and years. And of course, the greatest tradition of all, if you had produced someone in your family who killed a Turkish soldier at the time of the Ottoman Empire. And the possession of personal weapons and so on is essential to all the, these traditions. Um, what would the Serbs think? Well, I think the answer is not much. But on the other hand, at the moment, I don't think they're in a very good position to uh, resist the creation of an army because... Um, their own military build-up on the borders of Kosovo has been considerable since 1999-2000. The new, enormous new military base being built north of Vranja in southeast Serbia is, is the largest single military civil engineering project in the whole of Europe and European Russia. Uh, and uh, they, I think, would not be standing on very strong ground in NATO's eyes <coughs> if they protested uh, against a formal army being formed. Um, I think on that note I would stop because I know there's a great deal of expertise in the room, some of which is wonderful to see but I was very surprised to see here <laughs> and so uh, I would um, welcome your questions. Thank you.